Welcome to The People's Show with Big Nazar and Randeep Janda. Hey, what's going on? Happy Monday to you. It is the People's Show. Vic Nazar, Izzy Fair, filling in for Randeep Janda. Dominic Schermatti running the show. Intern Dave also running the show with us. You can always chime in. Be part of the show, 650-650. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Israel Fair, what's going on? You don't sound panicked, Vic. Uh, Canucks Nation, it's all why, supposed to be in straight panic mode. Why would I be panicked? I'm, <laughs> I'm just chill, good weekend, hope everyone else had a good weekend. Kind of a smoky weekend out in Coquitlam as well. Yeah, I was out that way yesterday and uh, and felt it. Yeah, kind of ruined my uh, Sunday vibes, but it's all right. It's all right. It was good. Big Six had a winning weekend. That's a surprise. Things are good. No, it's not a surprise. We, we, we are on the we are on the up and up. How about that? You and Geno Smith the tr- are trending Let's up. Let's go. I put all my stock in Geno Smith this offseason, and people were calling me out. It's like, what are you talking about, Geno Smith? Yeah, who's fourth in EPA right now? It's too Expected bad that points he already copyrighted or trademarked the... Uh... They wrote me off. I didn't write, no, write back, though, because you, you would have done that. For, you you could have done that for Big Six. It's the same, oh, same scenario. <laughs> you're right. Oh, I wasn't thinking ahead. <laughs> no, but we have slandered that phrase on this show quite a bit, me, Dom, and Randy, because yeah. it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, but no, but it sounds cool. You know what doesn't make any sense either? Let's you know, ride. Yeah. But no, that like- Let's ride the two and two. <laughs> and, and look dreadful doing it. Uh, we'll get into a lot of stuff through the course of the show, including, uh, yeah, some NFL stuff. We got the people's picks later on today for Monday Night Football. I uh, will do that all coming up. Uh, Don't at me and turf trivia as well. Uh, are we allowed to announce what we're giving away for turf trivia yet? Done. We're we're, we're good. All right. We have uh, Dave Matthews tickets coming in uh, November, November second at Rogers Arena. So all this week, if you're a big uh, DMB guy, we got tickets for you. Which is what you were asking me. Are you a big DMB guy? DMB. I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like Dave Matthews? Yeah. Yeah. Got some tunes? Yeah, he does. But it, it feels like one of those... Um, for for music fans, that feels like an acid test question to other people. Like, hey, do you like Dave Matthews? Yes. And if that person is like, no, they're like, oh, well, I don't have to listen to anything you say. <laughs> that, that That's how I feel about the Dave Matthews band. I don't listen to it. There's a couple of songs that I actually do enjoy. I don't go out of my way to listen to Dave Matthews, that's all. It's kind of like Radiohead. Okay. I think, yeah, I, I was going to say. I think Radiohead's got a bigger following than Dave Matthews. Well, but... I was going to say my instinct with that is that like people who like Radiohead are more intense about their fandom than people who like sure. DMB. But I, I do believe that there is a pretty strong DMB following out there. Radiohead but, fans are the most annoying music fans in the. In th- there it is. I, I would say J. Cole and then Radiohead. You have an unreasonable hate for J. Cole fans. You're just literally doing what the Radiohead fans are doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's happening. That's all that's happening. Uh, but yeah, it's not that Radiohead fans are annoying. It's that they like make you feel bad for. Yeah, they not, condescend you. Yeah, that's what it is. But I. 
You don't get it. They, you, you that, don't that, get that's it. That's literally the whole conversation any anytime I've had with with like hardcore Radiohead fans. I get the music. It's just not for me. That's all. And maybe I'm wrong, but Dave Matthews is like that to me. But we have tickets for Dave Matthews. So if you're a big Dave Matthews <laughs> fan, uh, Turf Trivia, uh, all this week. And again, uh, you can always chime in, be part of the show. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Brendan Bachelor will join us in about a half hour. Voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Also talk to Gary Grambling at MMQBSI.com uh, coming up at uh, 2 o'clock. So, you mentioned the, the panic for Canucks Nation. Canucks fans, Sat and I were in the post-game show on Saturday, and there was a fair amount of concern after that preseason game where they once again pick up an L. It is winless so far this preseason. And given uh, the type of lineup that I think the Oilers will trot out later today and the type of lineup that is expected uh, versus the Oilers tonight, I think that should continue to materialize. They're throwing out Kane, they're throwing out McDavid, they're throwing out Dreisaitl, Nuge is out there. It, it's it's a pretty loaded roster from the Oilers. Uh it might continue the winless stretch in preseason. We'll play back Boost Boudreaux later on in the show. He didn't seem overly concerned just yet, referencing Colorado having a great preseason and Jared Bednar leading that team to a 48-point season. So, again. Context. Context matters. However, what is real to be concerned about for the Vancouver Canucks so far this preseason? It's not the results for me. Preseason, the results are not important. We know that for certain. It's 2022. We've watched decades upon decades upon decades, if not centuries of sports, that preseason does not matter. Preseason results do not matter. And overall, I don't get too worked up about the context of play. However, in moments, you do see some gaps that do not get filled progression that we wanted to see sometimes it manifests itself in Connor Garland throwing a puck cross ice off the boards translate uh, transitioning to a great chance Jack Rathbone's had a couple of turnovers things like that where you look at and say oh this guy's not progressing as well Tyler Myers had one behind the net that led to a goal obviously on Saturday it's stuff like that that you look at and say this player is making the same mistake that we've seen him make over and over and over again. Now, with the intensity of people around you, are people covering better come regular season? That's fair to wonder. But like, what's real to be worried about for, for the Vancouver Canucks for you right now, Izzy? Well, what you just laid out there is interesting. Because those players, in Meyer's case, a veteran player uh, whose role on this team is pretty well established. Connor Garland, the player who had peaks and valleys last season, but the expectation is it should be a, a reliable offensive producer for this team. And Jack Rathbone, I think, has the biggest asterisk there as, hey, we really hope this works out because if he proves to be a legitimate NHL player for this team, you feel at least a little bit better about the defense. But all of that combined makes me think about... The conversations that we were having about this team and specifically what this team would look like under Bruce Boudreaux's leadership 
long-term and in terms of the way that they played. And if there is a question about Bruce Boudreaux as a NHL head coach, it's about him being tough on guys and establishing that culture. And, and what's that going to look like? We've seen the high end. His teams can score. His teams generally do win. Um, his teams have had, uh, you know, a shorter window, I guess, of success. It's been uh, condensed or concentrated at all three stops. And all of that said, going into the season, it feels like the most untouchable person, maybe aside from Thatcher Demko, maybe aside from Quinn Hughes, is Bruce Boudreaux. But if those warts in those players' games... Wait, is he untouchable? Well, I think I, in the I feel fan, like he's... Like, maybe not untouchable, but he has an incredibly oh, high approval rating. From right? the fans, we talk, sure. Yeah, no, I'm not talking in the organization. Sure. I'm talking for the fans. Because you think the organization's panicking? If anyone's panicking, it's sure. the fans. Yeah. And the thought is, okay, if we see those mistakes, Tyler Myers, he's been the same player since he got here. And he had a, a track record of being this kind of player in Buffalo and in Winnipeg. No one's expecting Bruce Boudreaux and this coaching staff to turn him into a different player. Reinvent his game. That's not the bar. But there is an expectation for this team to have a little bit more of that accountability that was maybe lacking at times. And how is that going to look? And it's preseason. I'm not I'm not projecting what we've seen in preseason onto the regular season and saying this is this is what this team is going to be. But what I'm curious about is there if this is what we continue to see, do you think fans will eventually point the finger to Bruce Boudreaux? He's got such an approval rating in the fan base right now that it's going to go to the players or it's going to go somewhere else. And the the takeaway that I guess I have from these few preseason games is I think that door toward the coaching staff is opening a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. And 650-650, this one's coming in from Ramsey. The habits need to be changed. Play a full 60 minutes and and, and be consistent. Culture is what we wanted to see as fans, improvements for it. My big two things coming into the season were uh, competitiveness. Do you raise the level of just competing, compete level? I, I know that's a very broad term to use, but that was a big thing for me this year. That do you raise, even from where that 57 games was, do you raise the bar from that, or is that you maxed out? Can you even go a little bit higher? So I wanted to see just natural competitiveness, and I think early returns, the only one that you could really stand out and say, Elias Pettersson is getting to the stage where he's now, every night, I'm trying constantly hard. The other one is consistency. Now... That was my grades of things that I wanted to see early on in the regular season. So I'm trying not to apply that to the preseason because it's at times unfair to do in the preseason because guys are just can be just trying to work the rust off, not going through the motions, but you're not necessarily going all out in the preseason, which is fine. But it's fair for Ramsey to text in other people is like, yeah, if you want that culture change, who does that get assigned to? And you mentioned the coaching staff. There's, we'll we'll get to the the clip as well in a second here about like the 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 leaders of the team. Uh, Elliot Friedman was talking about Bo Horvat. And it's not just on Bo Horvat; it's on J T. Miller as well, who has not looked particularly engaged in the preseason. But again, it's preseason. But that's that's the worry. If this team was meant to be taking the start of the season seriously, more seriously than they have been throughout their tenure here in the last couple of years. People wanted to see that level of commitment 
already. Well, yeah, because uh, coming off of last year, you can't have anywhere close to the start that they had. So the expectations for this team and you know the season previews from most outlets are are out now, right? We're just over a week out from mm-hmm. the start of the regular season. I know the way we do it at The Athletic is we start with the teams that are expected to finish at the bottom, and we conclude with the teams that are expected to contend for the Stanley Cup. So you're finally getting to the top seven, basically. But the, the Canucks preview is already there. Yeah. And our numbers, and this is pretty consistent, uh, you, you might find some disagreement on what that actual number is, but to be realistic, all of these are, are made-up numbers. It, it's not a guarantee of anything. Our number was 50% to make the playoffs. And if you're a team that's 50% to make the playoffs, you've got to show that you're that you're headed that way earlier. It, it, it you know you can point to the St. Louis Blues when they won the Stanley Cup in 2019 and go, well, they had a terrible start. And a lot of people were doing that with the oh look how great yep. the Canucks were post Bruce. Well, we we know what happened was Bruce Boudreau came in and the number of points that they put up, but they it wasn't they weren't close. If you really analyze that race, they weren't close to making up the deficit of two pretty poor months. And yes, it's preseason, but I understand why some of that doubt's creeping in. So a big worry for me, even in that 57 games, is that they were maxing out their effort, which I think a lot of people would say they were. They were maxing out their effort, and they played a lot of backup goalies. I think something like 35 38% of their games were against backup goalies, which was a trend to begin with anyways last season, how many goalies played. But also... How many games do you think the other team was also maxed out? So, again, the 57-game sample is nice to look back on and say, hey, they were top 12, uh, 11th in the league in points in that stretch or points percentage in that stretch. That's great. But put the context in. Were they maxing out for those 57 games versus relative to their competition versus playing backup goalies? Like, What was the degree of difficulty that you were facing while you were redlining to try to push to get back into the playoffs? And now that you get into this season, if that drops off, that's why I mentioned competitiveness Mm -hmm, is a mm -hmm. big thing for me this year, and consistency, if that effort level drops to 90%, 95%, which is what happens. That's human behavior. You can't solve that to say, hey, play like it's Game 7, Stanley Cup Finals every single night. That's not real. It's impossible. It's also unsustainable. Yeah. You, you can do it for three weeks, and then what's going to happen? You're going to crash. And that's my worry that we're going to see for this team this year, that you'll see the highs, that they'll go 8-2, and two, mm-hmm. but then you'll see the 2-8. and eight, And they'll constantly be in this struggle of up, down, up, okay. down, up, down. And they just don't find the middle ground. And if you hit a valley, mentally, where is this team when they hit the valley? That's the part that I look at and say, I don't know if they have the mental makeup to survive that well they're certainly setting up to you know their their joker their wild card is thatcher demko yeah and that that if you're a team that on paper up front and on defense projects to be a peaks and valley team how do you avoid those valleys you have a goalie who at his best is a top five and you know top five goalie Vezina candidate two things that kind of conversation the goaltending and the power play Yes. Like, and, and special teams. So your, your PK can't submarine you like you saw last year. But it's those two things that if, if you're not going to be yeah, consistent. You cannot have a historically bad yeah. penalty kill again. If, if you can't be consistent five on five to on the days that you're off, and that's going to happen more often than we realize, the days where your team is off, can you just grind out a game? Can you play a boring game and just say, hey, we just have to play clean, simple hockey and wait for our opportunity. Wait, Be more patient than the other team. I don't know if this team has the 
the overall patience and composure. The makeup. Yeah, to to play that style of game. Like, you watch St. Louis sometimes, and I've talked about St. Louis on this show quite often. Mm -hmm. Like, there were times last year where they just knew they weren't going to score a goal. And they just played difficult games. They made it difficult for other teams to find the center of the ice. And they just waited, 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 waited. And then you get one, then you get a power play. You can get... The Canucks always feel like they have to push their opportunities. Well, that they're a different team. Yeah. Like the, the they're, roster... They're, they're built differently, completely. This It's a team that has to lead with their offense. And has to lead with their power play. And when we saw the, you know, the most recent run of success, I feel like I bring this up all the time, but I, I do because it's relevant was the season prior to the season that where the, the pandemic took over and they mm -hmm. paused the season. When they were successful that year, the power play was really good, and then they had games where they were they were unstoppable. They would score four or five goals, and they were starting to get that hype. In the last two seasons, we have not seen them play downhill in that way, even with, with Bruce as the head coach, where they... I think maybe got a little bit tighter with some things, but even not to the you know the specifications mm -hmm. of what the front office management uh, would have wanted because we heard their comments about the progress that they want the team and the coaching staff to make in that area. And like I think to to your point, Bick, about well you know what were the Canucks up against internally and externally during the second half of last season. A team that was ostensibly playing for something was Vegas, and they had a couple of games against Vegas where Vegas was nowhere to be seen. And the Canucks, to their credit, took advantage of that and and, and beat a Vegas team that was still sort of pushing for the playoffs. That you're you know if you're imagining what that's going to look like this year, let's just keep it in the division. Calgary's got a lot to prove. Edmonton's got their eyes on repeating what they were able to do in the playoffs. And, and when you have great players that are like, hey, I'm this close to the finish yes. line now. That's the thing. It, and they, they went out and got a goalie, mm -hmm. supplemented in different ways. I still look at Edmonton's roster and I go, you know, the depth overall, I'm not quite sure what there to make flaws, of it. There are but when you have those pairing, two guys. Yeah. Yes, and, and they're they're the ones that are leading. And and, and, and Vegas is going to have, you know, I think, uh, kind of as, as chaotic as it is around them, somewhat of a bounce back. I don't imagine that they'll be as embarrassing as they were toward the end of last season, understanding that that goaltending situation is one where they don't have someone there to to stem that tide and avoid those those valleys that I, I think is completely fair for this team. But it, like the Blues are a great example because the way that they were built, they could play that game. They could sit back and we get a goal and then the floodgates open. Mm -hmm. And once they got some goaltending, all of a sudden that style of play worked. The Canucks have the goalie to do that for sure. We've seen that. But they're not going to have success if that's the way that they're they're going to play. And I, I, I think that is probably a reason that fans are looking at the, the mistakes made in preseason is it's not going to be good enough uh, for this team. 650-650 can always chime in. A couple of comments coming in about uh, Bo Horvat and his contract. There's one I want to read uh, in just a minute from Steve in the oil patch. But uh, let's get to this clip uh, that I think a lot of people are referencing right now. Uh, Elliot Friedman talking with Donnie and Dolly about uh, the framework of some Bo Horvat contract comparables, which we've talked about a lot. Uh, but here's the latest from Elliot Friedman. I think that everybody knows where everybody stands here. I, I think that Bo Horvat has established a comparable, and I think that's probably in the Sean Couturier area. And I think that the Canucks have established what they're willing to do at this time, and obviously it's not that. Um, you know, I, again, what have we learned about this Canucks management group? 
uh, we learned that this summer everything held on JT Miller and all of a sudden things changed like that. Yeah. And, you know, if, and that's what we all have to be wary about here. Like, even though the two sides, as far as I know right now, aren't that close, um, it doesn't mean it can't change very quickly if the Canucks decide it's so. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of what I'm waiting for. Um, you know, the, the Canucks with Miller, they said they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to do it. They weren't going to do it. And they did it. Now, Miller conceded a bit too, but the, it was the Canucks that ultimately came forward and said, we're going to change our philosophy on this. So until I have reason to believe that's not going to happen with Horvat, I still believe that that's could happen with Horvat. Like he's just, he's just a, very difficult to replace. Like a top six center in the NHL is very, very difficult to replace. Uh, a 30 goal scorer in the NHL is very, very difficult to replace. And the other thing too, is this is a guy that you drafted and you developed and you hope that the, the team has loyalty to the player and the player has loyalty to the team. And I think at the end of the day, the Canucks want him and he wants them. And uh, sometimes the road isn't easy to get there, but I always believe that that's, that's if you, if, if that's the, if you have a situation where two sides want to make it work, you can always make it work. It's Elliot Friedman uh, earlier today on Donnie and Dolly. So he references that Sean Couturier contract, which is, uh, 62 total million dollars, uh, 7.75 AAV, and the the 62 seems a bit rich for me, but the AAV might make sense if you kind of break this down. We've talked about this before as well. Yep. Um, my reference point has kind of been well, the JT Miller contract. It's 56 million dollars. I think there's a real case to be made if Bo Horvat is on the unrestricted free agent list come July one. Or whatever the date is. Actually, it is July 1. It's back to July 1. Yeah. We can finally start saying that. Yes, we can. I think there's a realistic thing. We we know we're working uh, Canada Day. (laughs) I think there's a real thing that Bo Horvat, if available, can command $8 million a year. Now, he can only get seven years. So you can work that out and say, that's $56 million. So the AAV might not make sense, but that, that money, that total money range for what he can command, that's real to me. And it's it's a high price, and this is why when we've talked about numbers of hometown discounts and everything like that, what where is the discount coming from? I think people thought Ryan Nugent Hopkins. That's not really rooted in any reality because that that number is so low mm-hmm. relative to what I think Horvat can command can command on the market. If he's taking a discount off of five point seven different conversation if he's taking a, diff- a discount off of eight million yeah that gets you in the range of sean couturier's 7.75 right yeah i mean there's couturier and then there's tomas hurdle who mm-hmm. signed last year who is on the depth chart the number one center for the sharks a team that's not expected to be particularly good that's 64 million dollars yeah it's and that, that was a big contract and the thought there and, and that the sharks also have to figure out what they're doing with Timo Meyer, who's mm-hmm. got he's he's got a he's the last year of a bridge deal for ten point five. He he's he's got the inflated version of what we just went through with, with Brock Press. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's that same same problem. Yeah. And while we all remember Brock Besser's rookie season pretty fondly, I think Timo Meyer's heights have been higher than than what Brock Besser has, but I guess it comes down to the evaluation of what Bo Horvat is as a player and 
I think for the first time, and you know, I'll give you credit, Bic. You've been ahead on this. Well, it's no credit. Nothing's happened. No, but the evaluation sure. of him as a player is for a long time, at least in this market, there wasn't a ton of disagreement. Yes, there would be the occasional hater that Bo Horvat's no good. Most people were lined up on this I've guy's... never said he's not good. No, no, I'm, but I'm, like... I'm not putting you in the yeah. hater camp. I'm just saying you were asking the question about wh- where's the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to... attaching that to contracts, okay, well, Kevin Hayes signs for $7 million mm-hmm. a year. What's Kevin Hayes? Sean Couturier, when he's healthy, is a number one center, especially because of the defensive impact. That's fine. Tomas Hurdle, you could make similar claims. I wouldn't be as as strong with those as I, as I am with Couturier forgetting that he's got a potentially serious back injury right Mm -hmm. now. But now with Horvat, it's okay. You know, Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the Oilers is either the third line center or a winger that moves around the lineup and doesn't necessarily stick with McDavid or stick with Dreisaitl. We've seen him move around, but Horvat's going to play center, but are you going to pay him like a top six center or are you looking at him where he's going to be as the third guy? And the Canucks, they just paid JT Miller a pretty significant ticket. And all the rhetoric right now is that they want to see him at center. I'm not convinced that he's going to play out that that contract at center. Mm-hmm. And that's even in the short term where it's I'm not talking about the last couple years of that contract when it makes more sense for him to be on the wing. I'm saying short term, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. We see JT Miller on the wing at points this season. But yeah, that's that's all part of the conversation. And it's why it's why it's a it's it's the latest guess litmus test for for this front office uh 650 650 this is the one i wanted to read from steve uh with horvat not yet signed it's got me thinking if they indeed sign him uh, i have a devil's advocate perspective that no one wants to hear i suspect that management might have an exit strategy to alleviate some of if not all the cores contract not all in the sense of dumping the core just that each player has the ability to get moved potentially so my question is how many of the core have no move or limited trade clauses in their current contract and that's the thing that if if you're if you're committing to some of these guys long term, you're gonna give up some. So JT Miller does have a uh, his next contract, which ends or starts next season. He will have a no move clause, so that's gonna play a role. Ilya Mikheyev has a modified no trade. We know right now Tyler Myers does, but this is the thing that's I don't know if they could have solved all the things at once. And there was a lot of pressure from fans and media that said, "Hey, you, you said you wanted to make moves and you didn't make moves." How come Tyler Myers is still on this team? How come Tanner Pearson is still? Every day that passes, their value marginally, incrementally goes up a little bit. Because if you had to do it back in the summer, you may have had to attach an asset. The longer this goes on, you can just let these things expire, either clean off your books or wait till the final year. So every every day that passes, they get a little bit more valuable to the rest of the league. And you might just have to be patient about that, which sucks because a lot of people have sat through some really tough hockey for the last five years and want to see this team take that step. Even the people that are like, hey, just always go for the playoffs. You're not getting that. So a lot of what's already happened with this core is just going to expire at some point. And so for Steve's question, it's like, hey, they might have an exit strategy. The exit strategy might be with some of the, the, the depth pieces, patience, and just waiting for some of that to go. What they do with a big piece like Bo Horvat, whether it's sign or whether it's trade, 
uh, remains to be seen, but it's part of the conversation that uh, will continue to evolve uh, throughout the course of the season. As we get into the season, we'll get uh, a couple of more preseason games to go, including tonight versus the Edmonton Oilers at 6 o'clock. You'll hear it on Sportsnet 650 with Brendan Batchelor. We'll talk to him on the other side here on The People Show. Welcome back to the People Show. Vic Nazar, Israel Fair today, filling in for Randy Janda. You'll hear him later today with Brendan Batchelor for the game at 6 o'clock. Canucks Oilers. Uh, someone texted in earlier. Do we know the lineup for the Canucks? Yeah, it's uh, put Coles in dry as Garland, Nielsen, Nils Amon, Nils Hoaglander, uh, Dickinson, Lazar, Klimovich, DiGiuseppe, Stevens, and Lockwood are your forwards. Uh, Christian Willanen, Kyle Burrows, DeKaiser, Jolson, Brisebois, and Brady Keeper. That was morning skate for your Vancouver Canucks. Colin Delia and Arthur Silovs as well. So it's a last chance to impress, basically, mm-hmm. lineup. Uh, imagine a lot of these names outside of a couple. Uh, you'll see in the AHL, but this is a show-us-something kind of lineup versus... A very uh, loaded Oilers lineup tonight. Yes. So that's why I kind of mentioned earlier is, is you might see more levels of concern, but frame it with uh, AHL versus NHL lineup tonight. Yeah, which we've seen across preseason uh, in you know, across the league. Uh, it, it's become pretty common practice that like teams... the away games are like yeah, yeah like it, it's. <laughs> I, I saw the from the Canadian teams there was that gap. Uh, Calgary, Winnipeg for one, Edmonton's had one too, where it's like the disparity between the two teams mm-hmm. is pretty significant. But you said it earlier, Vic, teams are playing for themselves in preseason. Um, they are trying to figure stuff out. Yes, I know there you know the rules about veterans and trying to sell those games. But mm-hmm. as sports teams, NHL teams, definitely among them, have gotten smarter, they can approach these preseason games with, you know, a, a real eye for what they're trying to accomplish on you know, their checklist for the Canucks. Pretty straightforward, yeah. Are, are these guys going to stick around a little longer? Do they have a chance to break through the roster? We haven't seen anything in preseason, I think, that's been particularly surprising. You know, people are impressed by Arthur Silovs, but that's mm-hmm. not necessarily going to change the, the makeup of the Canucks roster tomorrow. Yeah. It uh, fits the hype machine, but it's just, it's keep building upon that, right? Uh, all right, let's connect with uh, Brendan Batchelor, who joins us now, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Batch, how are you? I'm good, guys. How are you doing? Uh, we are doing well. I'll pitch the same question to you that I did uh, to Izzy. Uh, what is real to be worried about for the Vancouver Canucks so far this preseason? <laughs> well, not much, to be perfectly honest. I think... Um, you know, they, they didn't play the best game the other night in Seattle, but at the same time, Quinn Hughes wasn't in the lineup. And when you talk about your transition game and managing the puck, he is a colossal part of this that for this team, probably more so than, than he should be in a perfect world. But results in preseason don't matter. Um, you know, not having won a game to this point doesn't matter. Maybe some of the underlying stuff in terms of of effort and and what you saw from some of the veteran players in Seattle 
leads you that way a little bit, but at the same time, veteran players know what the preseason is. They know it's to tune themselves up for the regular season. And, you know, that's a Seattle club that had a bad year last year playing in front of its home fans, you know, wants to show that they're a better team than maybe people think they might be going into the year. And, and they played like it. Whereas the Canucks veterans and the Canucks lineup as a whole seemed like they were aware it was a preseason game. So again, like I'm, I'm not concerned. I'm not, you know, holding a state of the franchise at this point, but you know, are there some underlying habits that Bruce Boudreaux will want to get his team working better towards by the end of the preseason? Certainly, I think that's the case, but I'm not worried about anything right now. Yeah, I'm with you, Batch, in terms of sounding the alarm at this point. But the one thing when I answered Bick's question that stood out to me was Bruce Boudreaux's place in this because, because of what he did last season and his personality. He has such a high approval rating in the fan base right now. And I felt like this summer that it would... It would take a lot for him to lose that in the early going. And if the team struggled out of the gates, people wouldn't point the finger at him. But now because the preseason's been a little bit shaky, I feel like maybe that door's opened a little bit and people are analyzing the play and to your point about, you know, some of those mistakes and, and his role, I guess, in keeping the players accountable and in and, and, and putting that style that he would want them to play mm-hmm. from the get-go. What do you imagine that that messaging is from the coaching staff and, and the way that that's being perceived by the fan base? Well, I think it's pretty clear what Boudreaux's messaging is because he's, you know, one of the more honest coaches I've covered where, you know, what he says to you in the media is oftentimes exactly what he's saying to the players or exactly what he thinks. And, you know, he was asked about it. Uh, I can't remember if it was after the game in Seattle or you know, maybe the game before where they blew the lead to the Kraken in Vancouver. And he said, you know, results don't matter. I just want a full effort. I want a 60-minute game. I want to see the the underlying things that we've been working on in training camp come to the forefront in these games. You know, it doesn't matter if they win. doesn't matter if they lose. It's about the process. And, you know, lots of coaches say that. But that's that, to me, is where the expectation is from Bruce Boudreau, from the coaching staff is, look, show that what we're teaching you is taking hold. Show that, you know, the habits that we want you to have when the games matter are there. And, you know, tonight's game is sort of different because, you know, they are addressing a a less experienced NHL roster anyway, like a lot of AHL guys in there or guys that are on the bubble battling for positioning. Um, You know, two-thirds of what we expect their fourth line are going to be in the lineup tonight in Dickinson and Lazar. So, you know, again, you're not going to read too much into what happens with the game tonight except for maybe individual players, how they show and how their performance fits into roster battles and positioning for what the opening night lineup might look like. But to me, the only two preseason games that you really want to read into to a great degree are going to be the last two because Boudreaux has made it pretty clear that he wants to get down to the roster. So after this one tonight, they've got two more home games, Wednesday against the Oilers, Friday against the Coyotes. Those are the games where if they look bad or if you know they're managing the puck poorly or if they lose to an inferior roster and don't look 
like they're giving much of a, a pushback. That's where I get concerned because those last two preseason games are where guys start to ramp it up, start to get ready for the regular season. But to this point, I don't put a whole lot of stock in what we've seen. And to be honest, as I said, other than individual battles and guys jockeying for position, I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock in what happens in the game tonight when you're going up against McDavid, Dreisaitl, Kane, Nurse, Barry, uh, and most of your lineup will be in Abbotsford to start the season. Now, you did mention, you know, the, the coach did talk about, hey, the, the process of things, and so I imagine some people listening be like, hey, well, Miller was in the lineup, and Horvat was in the lineup, Pearson was in the lineup, and some of these guys ended up as a dash four, OEL was a dash three. It is the process of what you wanted to see in the preseason so far, like living up to a standard that maybe those guys should be living up to now to be fair you you did say hey like veterans know how to ramp it up through the course of a preseason to get ready for game one but are 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 some of the processes that are supposed to be worked on translating from training camp to practices to here in the preseason I mean it's to me it's still too early to really answer that question with any level of, of accuracy because as I said guys are ramping it up so yeah you know some of the things I guess that you could be concerned about are things that we kind of already knew. Like you see Tyler Myers make the bad pass, uh, trying to find Rathbone behind the net deep in his own zone and they turn it over and it ends up in the back of their net. That's a pass we've seen Tyler Myers make before. That's a mistake we've seen him make before. That's part of the player that he is. You know, there are some good things to his game, but he has been known to manage the puck poorly and have turnovers in bad areas of the ice at times in the past in his career. So, you know, that to me is not something that I'm too worried about because that's what you expect from Tyler Myers. Maybe the only thing, if I really wanted to read into something to this point, is the fact that with a veteran lineup on home ice against a less veteran lineup from Seattle, uh, I guess it was, what, Thursday that they played that game that you couldn't protect a 3-1 lead in the third period. And again, you know, it's preseason. Guys will be ramping it up. So they know that, you know what, if if we don't win this game, it's not the end of the world. But I thought Boudreaux's demeanor after that game in the postgame media scrum and, and how clear it was that he was disappointed that they hadn't held on to find a way to win that game and hadn't showed better in the third period – to me, says that there was a level of concern from him about the performance that night. Um, But again, as he said many times, the results don't matter in the preseason. He just wants to see full and complete efforts from his group. And that would probably be the one thing is the third period of the home game against Seattle. That wasn't there. Going beyond the concerns, uh, something that Bick and I have been kicking around uh, throughout the show is this idea that If the Canucks are going to be a good team, if they're going to be a playoff team, they have to be a team that that attacks on the front foot. That they have the roster makeup is one that is at its best when they are scoring goals, when they are pushing the play. From the preseason, uh, as as we've all been sort of fixated on on the errors and the sloppy play, maybe the the lack of consistency. Has there been anything? from the play that you've noticed where you think that, okay, there's maybe the potential for a certain combination or a certain player uh, to help kickstart what we think, if they are going to be that good team, will be key to their success. Yeah, I mean, they they are a team that is going to win with their offense and their goaltending. We know that the blue line is uh, 
essentially the same. I guess Rathbone making the team and sticking could change the complexion of it a little bit, but um, to a certain extent, they're going to be what we saw them be last year, and there was good in that when they were firing on all cylinders and their special teams were helping them out and they were getting goals from their top players and they played that sort of aggressive style under Boudreaux. And then, you know, there was the other side of it, which is they make mistakes in their own zone with the puck. They do struggle to transition it. They do rely on Demko uh, more than they probably should. And, you know, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that any of those sorts of things are going to change going into this year. I guess the real question is going to be, you know, if they are playing the more sort of aggressive style that we saw them play under Boudreaux, can they have the same level of success that they had under Boudreaux down the stretch last year? We know that, um, you know, there's been talk about them needing to break out and transition the puck better. But to me, I think there's only so much coaching can do to help that area of the game. If you don't have the players that can move the puck properly and, and make a good outlet pass, and if your wingers don't understand that they have to come low and help out, and you know JT Miller talks about this all the time, that it's a five-man defensive unit on the ice, so it's not just on the defenseman to make the outlet pass, it's on the wingers to be in the right spot. And too often at times we've seen the forwards and the defense be too separated or on different pages, and that was you know, a big part of why they struggled so mightily early in the year last year was the gap between the forwards and the defensemen, their inability to transition because, you know, the the wingers weren't helping out a lot, coupled with the fact that a lot of their defensemen aren't the best puck movers and, and transitional players. So um, all of that said, certainly with Boudreaux coming in and, and changing the feel around the team and changing the way they played, they had a lot more success. You would think that that sets them up well going into the regular season to do so again. And and as much as people want to be concerned or want to read into the way things have gone in the preseason, we still have yet to see a game with a roster that comes even close to looking representative of what they'll have on opening night. You know, Horvat didn't play. Um, I guess it was the game in Seattle. Mm-hmm. or No, excuse me, Horvat was in the game in Seattle, but he wasn't in the home game uh, where where they blew the lead in the third period. Conversely, you know, Pedersen and Hughes weren't in the game in Seattle. So, um, you know, I, again, I, I circle back to in terms of specific combinations or, or lines that might work or the way that they're really going to deploy this group a hundred percent once they go into the season other than some of the hints we've had through training camp and some of the the tandems here or there that we've seen through these preseason games nothing that we've seen comes even close to the opening night roster that will face the Oilers on October 12th uh Brendan Matchler joining us the voice of the Canucks before we let you go uh you mentioned kind of the disparity in the lineups tonight uh so it is kind of a show me night uh for some of the Canucks uh who are you keeping an eye on that you want to be impressed by well, I think Niels Hoaglander's on on that list again, uh, just because he's had such a good preseason uh, and training camp, and and you know has put himself back into a conversation of being a guy that can potentially play up their lineup. But that said, uh, we're going to hear from Bruce Boudreaux later on in the pregame show uh, when I go behind the bench with him. I asked him about Hoaglander, and he talked about how he's liked the way he's played, but he wants to see more firm results from that level of play. So, you know, 
for a guy like Hoaglander playing in the top six tonight against a, an NHL roster on the other side or close to an NHL roster on the other side, a regular season roster for the Edmonton Oilers. Um, you know, there, there's a lot for him to gain in terms of what he can bring tonight and, you know, if he can get rewarded offensively and, and contribute in that regard. And then the other couple of guys I'm looking at are Jason Dickinson and Curtis Lazar, who we expect to be two-thirds of the fourth line going into the year based on the way that Boudreaux has sort of built things out to this point. Uh, Lazar's going to play in the middle. Dickinson's going to play on the wing, whereas through a lot of training camp, it was Dickinson in the middle and Lazar on the wing. So there's something to see there in terms of what kind of a, you know, a game they can have, what kind of an identity they can craft, and whether they can get out against some of the top players of the Oilers and prove that you know, you might even be able to use them, not necessarily in a hard matching role, but, you know, can those guys be players that you trust to have on the ice when top six players on the other team are on the ice? So those are just a couple of things. In terms of the blue line, you know, there's not a lot there. Kyle Burrows and Danny DeKaiser are maybe the two guys to watch, but Wallanen, Juleson, Breezebois, Keeper, these are all guys we expect to be in Abbotsford to start the year. So it's really more of a focus on the forward group. And then the other guy I'd put in there as well, who's had a good training camp and may be able to push for a spot on the opening night roster is Phil DiGiuseppe. Uh, Batch, uh, get some rest. Uh, wait, 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 Vic. No, oh. no uh, Manchester United talk today? <laughs> no. I thought I was going to dodge this bullet. <laughs> I mean, because Izzy's Randy's wearing not his, on the show today, but if, of course you bring in another Arsenal fan. If, 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 you're, if you're watching along on the stream, which, by the way, I always encourage you to do so, at Sportsnet650 on Twitter, you can watch the stream. Uh, Izzy's wearing his uh, Top JVC of the table. Let's go. Arsenal jersey right now. Just wait until you guys run into Erling Holland, and you'll be yeah. humbled like we were over the weekend. Yeah, I'm not getting too far ahead of myself. Yeah. Uh, we've got Liverpool next week, and I'm they, they are struggling, and I'm not... I'm not getting too right. too aggressive, but uh, yeah, we, we handle our business in the derby. Hey, look, uh, three and goals we still. Did not. Still something. <laughs> still something. Uh, appreciate it, Batch. We'll we'll hear from you in the uh, pregame. Sounds good. Thanks, boys. Brendan Thanks, Batch. Bachelor. Uh, we'll do some derby talk later today. We won the second half. <laughs> I told you not to get too excited. And look, Man City are just playing a different game. They are. They just really are. I I, I don't. I'm not sure if I heard this correctly, but uh, Erling Haaland touched the ball like the least amount on the pitch, mm-hmm. but he converted three goals. It just, it's the right. He had a game earlier this year where he had like nine touches. Yeah, it's, the, whole it's game. the right and build up play, everything around him with the right striker. This guy does not care about touching the ball outside of the box. So when you can craft everything around one particular person whose sole intent is to live in the box and score goals, mm-hmm. I compare him to Ovechkin. Just the way he yeah. thinks about scoring goals is completely different than a lot of the strikers. Like Harry Kane's a really good striker. Yeah. Harry Kane wants to be part of the build-up play. Erling Haaland does not care. And Pep can make nine guys around it work because you have someone like Kevin De Bruyne, you have these overlapping runs. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like cutbacks, cutbacks. And all Erling Haaland wants to do is run between the posts laterally and run into space vertically. That's it. And it, and then pair that with, hey, I can finish the ball in different angles and different places in the box. Yeah, that's the thing. He's not a one-dimensional de- one scorer. No. He, he can do it with his left foot in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and he can do it along the ground. He can do it off a corner. It's where we're going to see things that we've never seen before in the EPL because it's a perfect marriage between someone's mentality and the tactics around it. Right. I mean, we've seen Pep sides before 
go without a striker yeah. and play this way. And now they have perhaps the most lethal finisher that yeah. we have seen, at least in this role. You know, not not and, making the Messi Ronaldo comparisons in terms of production, but at that advanced part of the pitch where he's not touching the ball very much except for inside the box. And it's it's interesting because someone that's having a great season at Arsenal, Gabriel Jesus, who came from Man City, and you just look, well, how come Pep couldn't figure this out? Well, just think of how this works. Like, Jesus wants the ball a lot. So he's willing to drift wide to be part of build-up play and help out to link play between midfield and attack, but he's willing to go wide. Erling Haaland's like, you guys figure it out. I'm here to score goals. And he's just willing to wait. It's like, that's what's exciting about like a, a, a striker that preys on scoring chances like this. It's cool to watch mm-hmm. until your team is up against it <laughs> and you're going to get shredded. Yeah. And they're just playing a different game than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and United, man, they were unsteady to say the least. They, they'd have been having a couple of good run of matches, and I'm curious, like, the month off, how much that plays into a role of not building up the, that confidence because you were just delayed and you have mm-hmm. to get sharpness all over again. But And they still have some – I think they've improved. They have some more interesting players to put in different positions sure. than they did, but they're not settled. But when, when the strength of your team and the spine of your team is supposed to be the back line, yeah. and Delo picks up a yellow card minutes mm-hmm. of the match, Malasia has a dreadful match, his first Manchester derby, like, mm-hmm. it's still a young player mm-hmm. – and when when that crumbles, then you just see how unsteady everybody else looks. And Erickson was bad on the ball. Yeah. Uh, Rashford was bad on the ball. Like, there were so many players that just got rattled because the back line was so rattled early. And it was just a mess after that. It was all that it was the likely scenario to happen. And then you fight back. You get to 6-3. Look, it's not a good result. The thing that annoys me is, A, how rattled they looked and... That's a thing that, like, even last year, it's like you can't trust this level of effort because we saw them quit in Manchester Derby last year, mm-hmm. and we saw them look how how completely devoid of confidence they looked in the first half. That's what you just didn't want to see, and I've talked about it here with the Vancouver Canucks. Are you prepared to make the trust fall with like these players that you've seen let down time and time mm-hmm, again? Mm-hmm. And you can talk about that fifty-seven game sample all you want. That wears off. You come into the next season, are you prepared to trust fall with these players? And when the this... circumstances change as well. Around yeah. th- what, you know, we're talking contracts with these players now. We're sure. not just talking about, hey, they had an embarrassing two months to start the season. But even, but even you if have you give these guys better. contracts, do you think anything's going to change? And, well, and... I mean, but like our, that's, you know, maybe where their priorities are lying or that's the conversation. Mm-hmm. And yes, we were talking about the JT Miller contract stuff throughout all of that last season, but now it's... They're not in the same place that they were, where they were more or less playing with house money because of how bad they were sure. to start the season. Yeah, that, that's fair. We'll get into that on the other side as well. Um, kind of did the Derby stuff there. I, I do want to get into the North London stuff because uh, someone's emerging right now in the uh, yeah in the Gunner camp. Uh, the, the the next great center back maybe Let's go. in the EPL. We'll get into that uh, later on in the show. Uh, but some really good Bo Horvat texts coming in into the inbox right now. We'll get to some of your reaction. We'll hear from Bruce Boudreaux as well because uh, we were talking about Horvat earlier about the contract stuff um, and and Elliot Friedman mentioning another comparable some people reacting to it we'll get to your thoughts coming up on the other side you are listening to the people show
Welcome back to the show. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Canucks preseason coverage on Sportsnet 650 brought to you by Black and Lee. Suiting up just got easier for modern suit and tuck sales, fashionable menswear, and same-day rentals. Visit blackandlee.com. All right, mentioned that uh, a lot of good text coming in, 650-650, into the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Keep them coming uh, if you won't have any thoughts. Uh, we were talking about the Bo Horvat uh, valuation Lots earlier. Lots of reaction to that. Yeah, so we'll get into that now. And I just want to be clear on something, okay? What a player can get on the open market is different than what I might value him as. Yes. Because I can craft a real argument why Bo Horvat should get $8 million or 7 plus does not mean that's what I would give him. I've been very vocal about this, of where I price Bo Horvat in relation to the rest of the NHL, somewhere in the low-end 2C conversation that's going to graduate into 3C because, you know what happens? Shane Wright enters the league. Matty Beneers enters the league. Connor Bernard is going to enter the league. Guys go up higher in the pecking order, and suddenly someone that was maybe the 34th best center finds himself in a spot where they're the 48th best center. That's just how the league works. So, for all the texts that are coming in, 650, 650, I'll read this one here. You're way off on the AAV. He's below average defensively, average skater, not physical, and primary assists are below par, six and a half tops. Typical, typical Vancouver overvaluing. My valuation of Bo Horvat is not too dissimilar to what he's making right now. Mm-hmm. Marginal raise for me, the expectation would be seven, eight years, but that's about where it is for me personally. How I view Same. the player... And how the market views the player, the overall NHL market, are two completely different things. And which is why I've been the brunt of a lot of, you don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. Because I wouldn't be in a, a spot prepared to give him the contract that he probably can earn on the open market. Because a lot of this, and it's it's less rooted in unrestricted free agency, but a lot of this is precedent. Mm-hmm. And that's restricted free agency, it's all precedent and whenever we talk about certain deals that set a new precedent that's those that team you know being very confident in that yeah. player and making that investment but otherwise it's all about comparables and we've brought up because i've been you've been talking about this a lot and my thought has been my personal valuation is pretty close to yours six million seems fair even on on a long-term deal but then you start bringing up players that i think bo horvat is better than and they're making a million more. Kevin Hayes is making yep. $7 million on the cap. And so Brad and, Col- and Cloverdale text in, Logan Couture's contract is trash. He's 33 years old, 56 point last year. JT Millen got eight for more points per game over the last three years. If Bo thinks he's giving eight, then he should give his head a shake. Look, I can understand that you don't think he's worth eight, but it's what someone else views him as. That's the like That's what drives a number. You can sit here and say, well, he's not worth six if... Pittsburgh just takes one team. Just takes one team. Yeah, that's all. It, it, it it's we can come to a common agreement of how what we think a player is worth. If the Islanders are like, well, we think you're worth eight, we'll give that to you. Then he's worth eight. That's just how it works. And you have to come to as a as decision makers in the NHL, you have to come to a point where you say, hey, what is the number that makes sense for us, and are we willing to just walk away from it? 
And that's the task that is filled with Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford and the entire management group that what is this player worth on the open market? What is he worth to us right now? And how much can we get for him if we were to explore a trade? Those three facets pinned against each other says, okay, which avenue should we take? That's that's the day-to-day job of a general manager amongst a host of other things. But that's what GMs are facing every single day. And, of course, we had you know, very similar conversations with JT Miller. Mm-hmm. The factors there are a little bit different. Slightly older player, although coming off of a, se- a more productive season than anything Bo Horvat's come close to. But maybe not as, you know, this has been more of a recent development, late bloomer style thing that, that we've seen. And, and he's gotten the contract, whereas Bo Horvat is more in that typical mode of uh, progress every year. Started off high pick, so high pedigree. So mm-hmm. was JT Miller, but Bo Horvat was a higher pick. And then just consistent, incremental, small progress, right? Not like there's been... Maybe in the early years, he went from being, oh, you know, interesting player to, okay, established NHLer. We can call that a big jump. But since he's been an established NHLer, it's been pretty consistent. And he's gotten, you could argue, a little bit better every year, but nothing to necessarily move the needle all that much. And that factors into this too. And I I do think that the age part with him is fascinating on both ends because with Miller, we're talking about a guy who will turn 30 next year and how old he is. Horvath's just a couple of years younger, but his contract is going to be coming up at that point. And in the NHL, two years is a long time, right? Like (laughs) they don't play that long. Even the guys that play Mm -hmm. forever, you're looking at, you know, 15 years is an amazing amount of time to be in the league. And so two years makes a huge difference for what a team might invest in, in a player like Bo Horvat. Uh, here's an exercise, 650-650, someone's texting in. Go through all the teams in, in the league and see where Horvat fits. Contenders, he's a third-line center. Incomplete teams, he's a second-line center. So what is he worth? That's from Dan in Vancouver. Again, what he is worth is relative to what a team wants him to do. So if he's an, on one of those incomplete teams, but they're willing to pay him 8.25, then that's what he's worth. You have to be able to view it. You know what? Honestly, we've seen that exercise done here. Just look at Tyler Myers. You can play that same exercise about Tyler Myers. If the market says teams will overpay for players, then that's what they are worth. And so if I'm Bo Horvat and I'm the Bo Horvat camp, I go to the Vancouver Canuck and say, this is what we think we can get on the open market. Do you agree? And if the answer is no... Then you explore the trade potential and everything else. And if he wants that money, and and this is not to say Bohorvat's only motivated by money, but you're allowed to ask for what you think you're worth. And that is the crux of the whole issue, which is the, the point I've been making for two years now, that we're going to come to this moment. And for a lot of people, I think we're starting to see some people now, Izzy, that are like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that for Bohorvat because it's fair from the Horvat camp to say, this is what people are making that are comparable to us or slightly worse than us. Mm -hmm. And we want a little bit more due to inflation, rising salary cap, all these other things that we want a bump on Kevin Hayes deal. We want a bump or near Thomas, uh, Tomas Hurdle's deal. Mm -hmm. We want a round Sean Couturier's deal. That's fair to ask for. And it's up to the Vancouver Canucks staff to say, okay, what can we do with this? Do we lock in long-term with this group and with this player and, and, this is who we are. We're not really advancing 
in our own vision, we're just doubling down on Jim Banning's roster, to be honest. Or do we cash in and bring in a bunch of assets that allow us to continue to build this out at a certain timeline that probably is the, the most reasonable thing to do? We talked about the Myers contract expanding, the Pearson one mm-hmm. expiring. And you can just say, once these new pieces get flushed in, we're really excited about where we're going. Yeah, I mean, like this text from Brendan and Nanaimo that bad contracts, saying that the Hayes contract and the Hurdle contract are bad contracts and the precedents are for fair contracts. That's not how it works. Yeah. Th- because it has nothing to do but with Horvath's the But I'm going to say, well, that's a bad contract. Yeah. And and around the league, they might say the Kevin Hayes contract's a bad contract. Are the but players saying th- that? Bo Horvath's camp is not going to say, well, I can't believe they signed Hayes to that deal. We're going to go compare him to another player. That That's just not how it works. It's not, it doesn't have any, fair market value is fair market value in what is signed, not in a theoretical, I think this player is good, I think this player is bad. A lot of the texts that we're getting from, I think the majority of people, to, to summarize it anyway, would be, look, for this team and for this player, based on their cap situation, based on where he's at as a player, six, six and a half, Seven seems to be excessive for people, but you've been making the case, Bick, for for a while that there is the precedent case for seven being a starting point. And I know that that's not in line with your valuation. It's not in line with my valuation, but it's in line with fair market value. It's always made the most sense to me uh, to explore trades. And if you're willing to double down on Bo Horvat at a price that... he thinks he can get, and the, the, the cost might be high to retain Bo Horvat. But if not, then you're going to have to walk down the avenue of, okay, what is this player actually worth? Uh, Dave in Vancouver, uh, for Horvat, the question might be how much do 30 goal scorers get paid around the league? If you want to reduce it to only that, to say, oh, 30 goal scorers. Well, like Jeff Skinner, again, he put up a little bit more, but like that was like $9 million. You asked me earlier, like what did Philip Forsberg get paid? It was $8.5 million. It's it's so many things rather than just reducing it to one aspect. Oh, 30 goal scorer. No, because he wins faceoffs. He, again, to your point, was a high pedigree pick at 10th mm-hmm. overall. He is a captain of a Canadian team that registers on the overall Q rating of a player to say, if he's available, what will teams do? Again, Kevin Hayes got a lot. And I, I see the text. What one dumb, dumb team is worth is what one dumb team pays is not what they are worth. That's <laughs> If one dumb team is willing to do that, that's what the Horvat camp says. We want a discount off this price. That's how this works. And that doesn't mean that the Canucks have to agree with the valuation of that dumb team Mm -hmm. but it sets the market and that's when the pressure points come up in the factors that you're talking about well he is the captain of our team what is that worth he's been with our organization for a decade what is that worth what can he bring to the group that we have here what is that worth that's when you start to get into the individual uh and, and i guess like team specific reasonings the intangibles we, and all that what we are talking about is the high level mm-hmm. hey here are five comparable contracts comparable players where like some people are going you know Sean, the Sean Couturier contract just under eight Sean Couturier is a, is a Selkie trophy winner right like that's the high end of defensive play for a forward he he has shown that Bo Horvat hasn't done that so how is that being compared well and I would also say Sean Couturier pie. signed didn't push it to market he signed yes. during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did it the year in advance. So Sean Couturier is starting his deal this year that he signed last year. 
Yes. If if Bolt Horvat pushes this to the market, like I would expect that number to be in and around that range, if not higher. He got eight years, Couturier did. Mm-hmm. If Bolt Horvat goes to market, he's going to get seven years, and so that's how the money works out. If, if it's if you if you have sticker shock right now, that's fine. And another text: price is what is paid, value is what you get. Absolutely, the old Warren Buffett line, hundred percent. That's what it comes down to. Uh, six fifty six. 50. Uh, keep coming with your thoughts. We'll try to uh, tackle a few more of these as the show goes along. But uh, we did mention we'll hear from Bruce Boudreau on a Canucks game day, by the way. 6 o'clock, you'll hear it on these airwaves. Uh, Canucks versus the Oilers. Oilers got a pretty uh, full lineup tonight. Uh, Kane McDavid, Yamamoto, uh, Holloway, Drysdale, Hyman, McLeod, Nugent Hopkins, Fogel, Benson Shore, and Vertanen, Nurse CC, Kulak, Bouchard, uh, Samarukov and Barry, and then Campbell and Skinner as uh, the Oilers expected lineup for tonight. Uh, and for your Canucks, uh, put Coles and Dries, Garland, Nielsen, Amen, Hoaglander, Dickinson, Lazar, Klimovich, DiGiuseppe, Stevens, Lockwood. Uh, your morning skate forwards with uh, Christian Wolanin, uh, Burroughs, DeKaiser, Juleson, Breezeball, and Keeper with Delia and Seelovs in net. Here's Bruce Boudreau from earlier today meeting with media. Bruce, uh, welcome. Safe to see Brock on the ice. Can you give us an update? Yeah, like, I mean, he's been skating really hard. You know, I mean, he's still uh, not shooting pucks right now. And I think he's got another doctor's appointment soon. So we'll see how that goes. But they're putting him through quite a lot of skating, which is going to keep his conditioning up. You told us last week that you were hoping he was going to skate, so he's been skating on his own? Uh, He's been skating with the injured guys for the last four or five days, I think, now. Any idea of progress when he might be coming back? That I don't have any idea right now. I mean, as I would, you know, obviously we want him back when he's ready to come back, but and not before. But he he's determined. He wants to get back as soon as possible. So uh, just cross my fingers and hoping for the best. Mikheyev and or Dermot, any? Uh, Dermot, nothing. Uh, Mikheyev, uh, we're hoping we're hoping, and he's hoping that he can start skating tomorrow. So put much stock into weight wins and losses in the preseason. I know you were upset after the home loss and whatnot, but you put much yeah. stock into it? I mean, in the end, no. I mean, it was a few years ago, not few, maybe four or five years ago when Bednar took over Colorado. They went 7-0 and in the preseason and ended up with 48 points. Um, so, I mean, uh, I don't put a lot of stock into it. You just want to see the right things being done. That's probably why I was upset the other night. Um, you can, you know, no matter who you got in the lineup, you, you, know, you never want to get outworked. And that's where I thought we were outworked. So, but as far as wins and losses and everything else, I mean, uh, I look at it as, look at if we, if we win that, win that game, it's, I always call it the difference between a rut and a groove. Like, I mean, uh, both the same thing, both totally different answers. We win that game, you could sit there and say, oh, we've only lost one out of four. So, I mean, but. You know, we'll, we'll. I think we'll get down to our team pretty soon, and and uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll be fine after that. I've still, I get a lot of faith in this group. I'm really, and I told them that today, that I think they're a really good team, and uh, and you know we're just going to ramp it up pretty soon. Well, I mean, you know what? If somebody shows something like extraordinary then I mean they, 
it might might have do something to help them. Uh, if if they don't, then they don't. But I mean, anytime a guy steps up and does a really great job, you got to take a second look and see if it, see how it works, right? What are you looking for tonight then in this group compared to probably an NHL roster? For the I I just think it's the hard work and and the stuff that we've learned, um, the positional play, the the little things that we're working on. From example, like even faceoffs today and and the support in, in our own zone. I mean, those are the things you want to see if they're getting through. Goaltending plan tonight? We better have one. Um, yeah, Delia is starting. Lazar in the middle tonight, I'm sure you're interested. I mean, uh, yeah. Lazar in the middle, just to get a look at him, Bruce. Well, so far he's, like, I mean, he's really been uh, a great professional, and that's what we want to see in him. And, um, and so, I mean, he's played right wing, he's played center. And, uh, you know, he's been top-notch at penalty killing. So uh, it'll be a superior test for him tonight, and I'm sure he'll pass it. What do you need to see out of Dickinson who really needs to put last year aside? Uh, he can play. He's playing a wing tonight, but mm -hmm. he's a pretty good PK with Lazar. What, what do you need to see from Petro? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, we're not expecting 30 goals. So, I mean, we just want responsibility where the coach can sit behind the bench and go, Dickie, get out there and have the faith that, uh, the the play uh, is not going to get in our zone for 45 seconds. And, I mean, when he's playing his game, that stuff happens. It's Bruce Boudreau getting ready for a game versus the Edmonton Oilers, where, uh, admittedly, it's a bit of an uh, inexperienced lineup being sent to Edmonton. Uh, but he did mention a couple of interesting things there with Brock Besser, Ilya Mikheyev, Brock skating today. Um, put through quite a lot of skating, and he's been uh, on the ice for a couple of days with uh, the rest of the injured group. Uh, so encouraging news. It, it, that like that part, I wasn't too concerned about about him skating and keeping the legs fresh. Uh, what's fair to worry about is the hand, because that's what the surgery is. Um, how he reacts to that is that going to impact the shot? How he handles the puck? Just simple stuff like that. Uh, his conditioning, I wasn't really concerned about. No, and the thing with Brock Besser is, uh, and it's it's a different injury, but we have a precedent now of him taking a while to get back to where he wants to be after being hurt, and we we have seen him get back to you know some level of productivity after some injuries. And this is not drawing a direct line from the back injury in the rookie season to to this one, but he's he's the one that's talked about that mm -hmm. in in that he's not necessarily always going to hit the ground running coming back from some of these injuries. So that to me, yes, is, is the defining factor. And that fits into the larger conversation that we're having about this team. They need their players to hit the ground running, whether they're guys that are going to be ready for opening night or whenever Brock Besser is going to be dropped into the lineup sometime in the first month, got to be ready to go. Mm -hmm. Got to be able to rely on him to be a top six contributor for this team regardless of missing parts of preseason or missing parts of the regular season. That's where it's, you know, critically important. That's something that we don't really see a ton in the NHL. You heard Bruce talk about it. Was, was he skating on his own? No, he's skating with the, the, the scratches mm -hmm. uh, or the, the other guys that are hurt. What does that look like? Like, I think that's a, probably, this is a larger conversation, but an untapped, information point like what what are what do teams do with mm -hmm. with their guys i think most of them are worried about that conditioning how, how strenuous are those skates because you're injured right and there's going to be a little bit of rust to to scratch off of once he gets going 
Um, but look, you reinforced there. It's like the start is so important. And are they going to be playing from behind the eight ball because of a couple of bodies out? We've seen you can recover from that. But again, what's the point you're recovering from? Do they struggle at all? Do they pick up results on the five-game road trip? And what does the first seven games look like? And how long is the out for? Is it four games? Is it six games? Is it eight games? Whatever it is, uh, he will come back. But again, I'm not. I'm less concerned about the conditioning aspect as I am the what is the functional level of play for Brock Besser once he's there? And, and how does he recover from the hand surgery? That, that's the part that, that I'm more focusing on when he comes back. The other name that he mentioned, uh, hopeful that uh, Ilya Mikheyev starts skating tomorrow, uh, which we'll see how long that goes out. Because, again, it was week to week. Uh, is skating tomorrow indicative of one week or is it indicative of on a process of two to three weeks. Right. That's the thing that's, but at least that's encouraging news that he's going to hit the ice hopefully tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. The, the longer a guy goes without being on the ice, I mean, we've been talking about a bunch of Flyers contracts, so it's been top of mind, but like mm-hmm. a guy like Ryan Ellis, who's might not, doesn't look like he's going to play at all this year. Mm-hmm. He got hurt last year and there was a bunch of things of, well, when's he coming back? And they could put a timeline well, on Well, that it. they didn't even know like what the injury was yes. until semi-recently and it's a very rare injury. Yeah, but like, it was like, okay, well, when's he coming back? Well, we can't really know until he gets on the ice. Yeah. And I think he did get skating a little bit. I think in February last year, yeah. And that's the point. It doesn't necessarily mean it's imminent. Yeah. Like, it's it's that next step in the process. And in, in, in Alice's case, yeah, you know, kind of freak injury, freak situation, mm-hmm. really hard to predict and, and apparently really hard to, to rehab from. Um, Mikheyev seems more straightforward from what we understand. And I, I wouldn't expect him to be right back next week, but a couple of weeks seems fair. Uh, certainly something to monitor with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, on the other side, uh, we'll get to uh, Turf Trivia, your chance to win some Dave Matthews tickets. Uh, and also, uh, what is going on in the NFL right now? It's very defensive. I got to admit, one of my favorite seasons in the NFL in recent memory. <laughs> and also, is Geno Smith real, Is he? Is what's happening in Seattle real? I will get into that on the other side. Bick Nazar, Israel Fair. You're listening to The People Show.